Thank you for coming to this workshop on, on revival, uh, specifically looking at America Awakened, the 20th century and beyond. I just throw that out there in case you're in the wrong room or something like that. That's what we're going to be talking about here. My name is Colin Hansen. I serve as the editorial director of the Gospel Coalition. That means that I'm responsible for whatever you see on our website, tgc.org, and oversee a staff of of editors around the country and around the world trying to produce daily uh, gospel-centered interviews and videos and podcasts and especially articles. encourage you to to check it out and kind of follow through on how we especially carry out the Reformation focus, the discipleship focus of what it means to be um, centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So... um, I also, uh, Leon's referred a couple times to a, to a book that I wrote with John Woodbridge, who's a research professor of, of uh, church history at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. It's called A God-Sized Vision, Revival Stories That Stretch and Stir. Um, I know you can pick it up back there because I just grabbed this copy. Don't tell them that I didn't pay for it, but I promise I'll put it back. Um, but uh, essentially what I'm going to try to do in this talk is give you a hint of what we write about a lot more in that book and can cover in much more time than we have this afternoon. Essentially, we, we've, um, uh, Dr. Carson and Leonce have done a good job of setting up a couple of the major emphases of the Bible on revival. My job is to try to help you to see this from a historical perspective, to share a few stories, especially related to the United States and California in particular, to help open your eyes to what God can do. And I have one major focus that I want you to be thinking about here. I find that so often we are separated by some kind of of mental ditch between the past. As if things were always better in the past and getting worse. Or always easier for Christians in different times and different places. And that we can't somehow see those same things that happened in the past, or somehow our era is fundamentally different from that, as if people back then were just dumber, as if they were more gullible, as if the culture was just an easy place to be a Christian. That's, I think, how so many of us view history, and as a result, we fall into the trap that Leon's talked about of not praying for revival, not praying with expectation. So that's my goal, to help look at what God did, especially in the 20th century in the United States, particularly in California. Uh, We'll look a little bit about um, the Bible uh, first to kind of set that in context as well. But that's what we're going to do for the next hour or so. Before we do so, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to, to come together among those who share a desire to see you work in ways that many of us have never experienced, ways that maybe before today we didn't even know were possible. Lord, open our eyes to your word, open our hearts to you, that we might receive what you would have for us, what you have planned for us. And Lord, we ask that as you stir our hearts and minds, that we would again see you work in unexpected gracious ways. Lord, come among us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Seeing is believing. Or I'll believe it when I see it. These are extremely common phrases, household phrases in our culture today. Because we live in a show-me society. It's really not that much different in the United States if you live in Missouri, the show-me state, or Chicago, or New York, where I lived for most of my adult life, or in Alabama, where I live now, or in the Bay Area today. We live in a show-me society. Prove yourself. Don't take anyone's word for it. This is just common sense, right? That's how we avoid investing in our friends, cousins, buddies, can't-miss startup project. I'll believe it when I see it. This, of course, is the foundation for many wonderful things in our society, not just avoiding scams. This is the foundation of our scientific method, that which is observable and repeatable. This is what it helps us to understand 
more about God's word and discover world, his creation, and discover how he has ordained things. This is what allows us to alleviate much of the suffering in the world and brought great advances to, to our society. Indeed, it's how we can gather here together today. But as you know full well, this has a corresponding downside. A downside of naturalism. An assumption that if I don't see it, then it can't be possible. If it doesn't happen in front of my face, then I'm immediately skeptical of it. This is part of how we get into that ditch I just talked about. This is obviously a significant problem for Christianity, or for that matter, any other religion, or for that matter, history itself. Have you seen, for example, thinking as Christians here, have you seen a flood that covers the whole earth? Have you seen a donkey speak? Have you seen a man raised from the dead? These are just a handful of the, to our society, preposterous things that the Bible tells you to believe. Like Dr. Carson said, not just with a kind of faith, a kind of assumption, but that these are real historical events. For that matter, have you ever seen Christians sharing everything in common? As Acts 2 says that they did. You can see then, if seeing is believing, as Christians, we have no hope. We have no hope if the only thing we can trust is that which we perceive by the senses. Because after all, Jesus has not returned. He promised He would. He hasn't yet returned. Think with me back in Christian history. How would you have felt if you were living in that era thinking, Jesus, You said You would return. And yet, look, the emperors kill Christians for the fun of it. For sport. In the Colosseum of Rome. How about a time, think with me back to the Reformation. How, think of me of, of a time when the church launched wars against other religions, wars that were paid for by lucrative indulgences that guaranteed salvation. Whereas God, during the Middle Ages, during the Crusades, during the era of the indulgences that built St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. How about if you were living at a time, Jesus, you haven't come back, and yet Christians are being burned alive for so much as suggesting that Christians ought to be able to read the Bible for themselves in a language they comprehend. How about that time of the Reformation in England? You can see then, it's not just a matter of disbelieving what we don't see, but what we actually see also tempts us to despair. It tempts us to despair. How can we believe in such a time? How different, though, Jesus says, are the eyes of faith. Not a faith outside of history, but a faith that believes these things. Well, the bad things we know have happened, but the good things, Jesus being raised from the dead, chief among them, are also true. In fact, he spoke about this very thing in John chapter 20. Verse 29, you can flip there if you'd like. It's a well-known passage. It's where we come to, unfairly for the most part, describe the disciple Thomas as the doubter. It says when uh, Thomas was not with the other disciples, when Jesus came back and appeared to them, did not believe, did not believe because he had not seen. Jesus invites him then to touch his very wounds. Even Jesus in his resurrected body still maintained those wounds. And in verse 29, the Bible says, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? After all, Thomas, when he did see, declared, My Lord and my God. But Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. That's you and me. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. That is an essential element to revival. Because revivals demand that believers, that you and I, see beyond our circumstances. 
whether we're talking about the entire world and all of the incredibly negative news that we see, or the major things in your own life, the cancers, the lost jobs, the other suffering. Revival demands that we see beyond these circumstances and trust God as only He can act. To act as only He can to vindicate His name. To prove Himself faithful in light of these circumstances. And I'm here to say, and we're going to look at in our time together, that revival has happened before in the United States. It's happened before in California. And it can happen here in the Bay Area. First, let's look at a few examples of what this looks like in Scripture. So there are four keys that I want to share from Scripture. We're going to kind of fly through these so you might not have a chance to look up each one of these, but four elements of revival that we see in Scripture. Hopefully some of this will at least be consistent with what you've heard so far and you'll continue to hear this afternoon in subsequent talks. Trying to make these some memorable points as well. First key to revival according to Scripture is that we must remember... That's the foundational point of my entire talk today, and that's uh, consequently where we start. I'm drawing this from Joshua 24. Okay, so Joshua 24 coming at the end of this Old Testament book. Maybe you're familiar with it. If, um, maybe, maybe you're familiar with it. So Moses has recently led the Israelites out of their captivity uh, in, in Egypt. They've wandered in the desert all of that generation because of their sin and their distrust of God, despite what they had seen, they forgot. They turned on Moses and they turned on their God. As a result, none of them, including Moses, were allowed to enter into the promised land. But then Joshua, taking over the successor for Moses, he leads his people in amazing feats done by God that are essentially replicating, reminding them of the Exodus itself. So what you see here is a crossing, just like they crossed the Red Sea, then they crossed the Jordan River. Just like God had cleared away those chariots that had chased them, they marched around the walls of Jericho and they fell. Joshua 24 is where the Israelites gather together to remind each other what God has done to remember collectively what God had done in their covenant renewal at Shechem. I encourage you to read that for yourself. The essential key there is before they can go back before God and say, God, come be in our midst. We consecrate, we give ourselves, we dedicate ourselves to you. They have to remember who he is by remembering what he's done. The first key element of revival that we're going to look at and focus on, especially today, is remembering what God has done. The second thing, second key element to revival, is to rejoice. After all, remembering God's work and remembering who He is naturally leads to rejoicing. The passage I've identified for this point is 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're moving ahead in redemptive history to the time of King David. King David had opportunity many times to remember God's faithfulness to him, delivering him from the hands of his adversary, Saul. In this case, in 2 Samuel 6, we see David rejoicing because the ark has returned to Jerusalem. The Philistines had taken it away. didn't go so well for them. You can read about that. They profaned God's name in their, in their handling of the ark and especially by their simple disbelief in the God of the ark, Yahweh. So in this case, after God has brought the ark back in a victory over the Philistines, um, David has opportunity to stand at the front of this procession and dance. He's rejoicing in the Lord's mighty works, which include, by the way, striking down Uzzah, who had touched the ark to try to steady it as it fell, which also shows, again, the utter holiness of God there. So the rejoicing, again, goes alongside this kind of reverent distance from God in some ways. Um, Also, interestingly, as we see here in this rejoicing of David dancing as if 
No one were watching. Um, You see his wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, furious at him, enraged at over this profane behavior on his part, at least from her perspective. When revival comes, when the remembrance has happened, when the rejoicing has happened, don't expect everyone to be happy about it. There will be some who do not rejoice with you, despite the fact that they profess belief in Christ. It's a key thing that happens again and again and again. uh, Revival does not necessarily produce peace in the church. It may, but it may produce peace among those who are caught up in this work of the Holy Spirit, even as it then separates those who have rejected God in Christ, but you didn't know it before the revival. So you see there's remembering, there's rejoicing. Third point, there is also repentance. You don't have the rejoicing in God's grace unless the people have repented of their sins. They've turned away from their rebellion and they've turned to God for deliverance. Example here is Second Chronicles 34. I won't go into the, the full story here, Essentially, again, we're moving forward in Jewish history. The kingdoms have divided northern and southern by this point. But things have gotten so bad, hence the need for revival, that there was a major discovery. This wasn't some kind of artifact. They were actually working on the temple under the leadership of King Josiah. And their discovery, it astounds me even now. They discovered the very book of the law. They discovered the Bible we hold in our hands. How you lose that, I do not know. Uh, Though, as Dr. Carson said, how many of our churches lose it by simply not ever reading it? Or you know what that's like personally. Well, when revival comes, I guarantee the Bible will be open to you in fresh and powerful ways. And one of the consequences will be repentance. When the Jews discovered this book of the law, they read it and said, oh my, that's not what we've been doing. We have a lot of repenting to do. Immediately reforms came and what followed was a rejoicing and a celebration of the Passover again as they read back and saw, oh, that's what we're supposed to be doing. So you can see there how these these points are all linked together. They remember, they rejoice, they repent. And finally... They resolve. In revival, we resolve. This I'm talking about from Acts 2. This is, I alluded to it earlier, this and Leon's talked about it as well. This is Pentecost when the Holy Spirit that was promised by Jesus is then sent to come upon the apostles and they preach miraculously in languages that are discernible to everyone who had gathered there. The resolve then is to take that message of Jesus Christ to the nations. It is then to scatter and to preach. Um, It would actually take some pressure, as Leon's talked to, that would then scatter them. But the resolve was that they would live in obedience with the commands of Scripture, including the Great Commission, and they would go. They would go to the people and they would take this gospel. The rejoicing would not just stay internal. It would have an external manifestation. This is an important point to get because a lot of what I'm going to talk about in the 20th century comes in the form of evangelistic meetings. Those evangelistic meetings are not themselves revival, but they may be the outworking of revival. So just because a lot of people show up to hear somebody speak at a conference, including this one, doesn't mean it's a revival. However, this may be a sign of revival. I'll tell you what a true sign is, though, of revival. You're not going to have a revival unless people are coming to faith. One of my favorite phrases that comes from Acts 2 about the church is that they praised God and found favor with the people. I love that. They praised God and found favor with the people. Not all the people... Some people were implacably opposed to them, but no doubt many of the people. Many people who were either ignorant of the church or actively opposed to the church, suddenly they found the Christians found favor with them and many believed. 
So this is the kind of preliminary kind of setup. I'm trying to look here from Scripture so we can have a context for understanding the rest of how this is unfolded in history. So we have remembering, rejoicing, repenting, and resolving within revival. So, one last question before we get into the 20th century. And I know we're in the 21st, but I'm focusing on the 20th because we haven't quite seen what God's doing in the 21st yet. We don't have that uh, benefit of, of retrospect yet. But this, maybe this is what you came to this conference for. I'll give it to you right now. How do we get revival? I have your formula. I have your formula right here. Okay? Here is how you get revival. Several steps. You study God's Word. You sing. You pray. You preach. And you serve others. Okay, I'll go through that again. Study, sing, pray, preach, serve. I'm hoping that doesn't really sound that special to you. I'm hoping that sounds fairly familiar because that's just church. That's just what we're doing here. This isn't church, but that's just what Christians are supposed to do when they gather together. That's your formula for revival. And that's my point. We do what Scripture commands us to do in obedience and thankfulness to God for what He's done for us in the ministry of Christ. His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His intercession praying for us before the Father right now. Point is, in revival, we're doing the same things, but all of a sudden, God, for His own purposes, often unknown to us, grants extraordinary power. All of a sudden grants extraordinary power. And I do want to say just uh, briefly before the 20th century that I do see evidence of some miraculous works in our day that God could very well be pleased to use as a catalyst for revival. Like I said, just because we're gathering as a conference doesn't mean there's revival, but it's a good sign that you would spend your Saturday to come think of the things of God, to sing to pray together, to intercede on behalf of your neighbors and your churches and your own personal life. That's a good sign. In fact, um, Dr. Carson and a couple of our other leaders at TGC, Tim Keller and John Piper, recently recorded a video that we uh, released at TGC.org talking about how many, the incredible numbers of young people today who seem to be in, who seem to be serious about the things of God, serious about God's mission, willing to take that message to the ends of the earth, is part of what Dr. Carson alluded about with David Platt's message at the Cross Conference, which was an event that was encouraging young people, especially college students, to be missionaries around the world. And so I I don't take it lightly that people like these leaders who have been ministering faithfully for generations look around and say that they have more reason today to be encouraged about the state of the church than any other time. I want you to think about that. Even even as your, your news feeds or your Twitter stream or whatever else might be more discouraging than ever, inside the church, God is doing special things that these trusted leaders have never seen before in their lives. That video on our site, very encouraging. Church planting, I know, is something that uh, some of you in this very room are actively engaged in. I don't take that for granted either. That's not, it's not something that just naturally happens. It should naturally happen, but it takes a lot of sacrifice. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a willingness to fail. Well, there is amazing things like that happening. We heard about Leon's having planted his church just a few years ago. Justin Buzzard talking in a different workshop right now. Incredible stories of God's Faithfulness, working through church planting. That's a real encouraging sign in our own day. No doubt you're probably also familiar with the incredible growth of the church around the world. Uh, Scholars have been observing this for at least the last decade. Um, But uh, it's interesting that there's a magazine in the 20th century called the, it's still around today, called the Christian Century. It's actually a liberal publication and the idea was this kind of liberal Protestantism would spread around the world. And this would be the Christian century. 
as you know, it turned out to be the bloodiest century of all time in anything but Western civilization collapsing on itself in the world wars. But you know what actually happened? It was the greatest expansion of Christianity in world history. Not liberal Christianity, but right alongside that, around the world, tremendous growth in especially Africa and Asia, along with South America. And it's not inconsistent at all that that would go alongside death in many cases, including suffering by those very Christians. It goes hand in hand in Scripture and often goes hand in hand in our day. The final point that I think is tremendously encouraging, talking about again the 20th century and beyond, the communications technology that makes events like this possible. Um, I mean, just the, the promotional aspect of it with the work that I do at tgc.org. It's amazing to, to be able to coordinate with believers. Three of our top red cities in the world are Sydney, London, and Singapore. Really encouraging. Three out of our top six, I think, cities alongside New York and Chicago and somewhere else that's not occurring to me right now. Um, it's amazing that with relatively low cost, we can get this gospel message out in ways that are unprecedented. Um, there is more opportunity than we could ever have asked. If you had gone back 50 years ago and prayed like, like at this conference for God to do a miraculous work, it would not be surprising at all if this would have been the exact thing that God would have done to answer those prayers. Essentially, what I'm saying is we are the answer by God's grace to those prayers. And we live in a wonderfully encouraging time. And I hope you see the great possibilities for revival in our own day. Like I said, my goal is to try to break down some of the divides between us and history where we assume that our own day is a day of small things and the pre former days were the day of big things. I'm telling you, in so many ways, we live in the era of big things that our forefathers in the faith prayed for. And we're going to see some of that right now. So, let's get into this, especially looking at World War II in the aftermath, the post-war awakening in the United States and particularly in California. There were lots of the same factors 70 years ago. And just as now, God works in remarkable, positive, encouraging ways right alongside worrisome trends and legitimate concern about culture and the church. So, I mentioned the seriousness and the ambitions of young people in our day. It was very similar, very similar after World War II. Young people willing to take the gospel to the world. One ministry in particular, it's still going today, is called Youth for Christ. One of the innovations of Youth for Christ was bringing young people together, encouraged by their peers, across denominations. This did not happen before. Now, we all know that it happens. It did not happen before. Young people gathered around their peers from different churches, across denominations. Very encouraging thing back in their day. We see it in our own. But we wonder, why were people so serious back then? Well, I've already alluded to it. Here was the downside. The downside was the seriousness came from the reality that the world civilization had somehow survived two world wars unlike anything anyone had ever seen and unlike anything anybody had ever imagined. Not only had they survived those wars, but there was more or less the absolute expectation that a third, far worse war was going to follow. A nuclear holocaust that would most likely end all of civilization as we knew it. That was the fear that people lived in following World War II. Alongside that, you had the advance of atheistic communism. That may sound just kind of like a buzzword, but the reality was... In places like Russia and China, where communism advanced, churches were clearly abolished, many pastors were killed, and the faith was simply outlawed in many places. This was a pretty worrisome sign for people. Um, 
It's just it's hard to imagine how daunting and how hopeless that made many people feel at the time. Another aspect that was going on right now, we, we live in this world and we know how it's turned out and we know that God has actually used this largely for good, but one of the most important things that was happening back then as well was world revolution that came along decolonization. I'm talking there about India moving out of the British Empire into independence, things like Africa, the African states gaining their independence from the European powers that could no longer support them um, as a result of the money and lives that were lost in the world wars. We see that, and it's actually been one of the most tremendous engines of church growth around the world as indigenous believers in these countries have taken leadership positions in the church. But I'm here to tell you, that's not how people saw things back then. Many people thought there was no hope for these, for these places. No hope for these churches without the missionaries who'd been expelled from those countries, in some cases, or at least had lost government protection because missionaries often went alongside support from Western governments. Okay? So people thought at the time, well, what are we going to do without this support? We look back now and we see... Thanks be to God, that was the very growth and strengthening of the church in these areas. So, that's the backdrop for the seriousness of people back in the mid-20th century, especially young people gathering together across denominations. There was also, like in our own day, a recognized need for new churches and other ministries to organize and spread the work of God a recognized need for new churches and other ministries for organization. We often look back on the 1940s and 50s as some kind of black and white, either glory era, depending on your politics, or nightmare scenario. Again, depending on where you fall on that political spectrum. And the church, I think, often assumes that things were, again, much easier back in the 1940s and 50s. And I would agree to some extent that it was a glory era for the church. If you were a liberal Protestant or a Roman Catholic. If you were a liberal Protestant or a Roman Catholic, but not if you're an evangelical Protestant. Not if you were a conservative Protestant. Because in the 1940s and 50s, you can go back and you can read the popular books of the time. A lot of emphasis on the ethics, the morals of religion, but not as much corresponding emphasis on the new birth and spiritual transformation. The new birth, of course, that Jesus talks about in John 3 to Nicodemus, responds and says, this is all you need. You must be born again. That would become a very popular phrase in the United States, but not until 1976, when a candidate from Georgia running for president described himself that way, Jimmy Carter. At the time, again, lots of emphasis on religion making you a good person, a good upstanding citizen, but not the kind of spiritual transformation that we're talking about at this conference. In fact, one scholar, a man by the name of J. Gresham Machen, said that Christianity had been largely replaced, even though it went by the same name, by an entirely different religion, a religion called liberalism. Again, I'm not talking here about politics or, or some political party or something like that. I'm talking about an entirely different religion without all that superstition. Stuff like the resurrection. Stuff like spiritual transformation. Machen had argued in the earlier part of the 20th century that Christianity had been replaced by this alternate religion of liberalism. Okay, so that's another, another factor. Recognized need for these new ministries because of the problems within the church. Another factor was Christianity exploding internationally, particularly in the Far East. I have in mind especially Korea and China. That was a major factor of what was going on in there. We're going to talk about Billy Graham in a, in a little bit. Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, a tremendous woman, actually uh, grew up in China. Her father, L. Nelson Bell, was a medical missionary there. Um, as Leon had talked about with the 1907 Pyongyang revival, Korea um, 
which that revival, he didn't mention that, but it's, it's, it's in the book, that revival would end up spread through, uh, through Western missionaries, including a man by the name of Jonathan Goforth, to much, um, many regions of China as well. So this was a major factor, major factor of religion at the time, spreading in the Far East. However, again, what is the backdrop, historically speaking, of what's happening during that time? Well, we know we don't, li- we don't live in a world where there's one Korea. We live in a, div- in a world where there's North and South Korea. And Pyongyang, where that revival took place, is one of the most horrific places on earth today as a result of that communist regime in North Korea. We also then know that, chi- that communism took over in China and one of the first things they did when they had the power to do so was expel all of the Western missionaries to get rid of that Christian influence. And as I've already alluded to, it was that very factor that produced the opposite of the intended effect of the communist leaders. It actually strengthened the local uh, churches to be able to withstand that persecution that continues in so many ways today. So you also, at that time, had the spectacular communications revolution. Sure, it doesn't seem that way to us today that radio and television would be incredible advances along with air travel and the interstate system. But if you can go with me for a second, just imagine a world without any of those things. Certainly, again, something like this would not be remotely possible and neither would many of these other positive things I'm going to talk about. So we're Americans, right? So we love. Technology is always good because it allows us to do all these things. Well, in one sense, it is good. Evangelicals used it to spread the gospel. That's wonderful. But here's what happened at the same time as a result of that. In retrospect, we can see that these technologies severely undercut local communities. It destroyed, in many cases, their cohesiveness the kind of cohesiveness that kept churches together and invested them with authority. So communities, whether they be of immigrants or ethnic groups or whatnot, where the church was often central, these, these travel and communications technologies broke them up in so many ways that really undercut the leadership of the church. Again, I just say that to show in every stage of history, God appears to be doing incredibly encouraging things right alongside the discouraging things. Again, you hear me just pounding that point home. Pounding that point home. It was, it was true back then and true now. I, I want you to be clear. I don't believe any simple, don't believe any simple reading of history. One of the things that we tried to do in this book, Leon's alluded to it, was show the corresponding downsides of every revival. Because every revival comes, and then every revival goes away. So sometimes the revival disappears just because God seems to be doing a different work. Sometimes it disappears because of disobedience on people's, on people's behalf uh, in, inside the church. A failure of discipleship, as Leon's alluded to. Well, that's, I, I want you to see again, don't believe a simple reading of history that either says everything was great or everything is great or everything is bad or everything was bad. Don't believe it. The basis of our hope is not what God is doing in our circumstances. It's because of our sure faith in how the story ends. It ends with Christ's return. That's the only sure foundation of our faith. So all of this, all of this is setting the stage for what was the most spectacular awakening of the 20th century in the United States that continues to affect each and every one of us today. I'm going to introduce you to a few of the main figures. We have about 20 minutes left. Some of them you you probably know, others you may not. And I want to emphasize particularly the role of California in this. The first person I want to bring up is Harold John Ockengay. I want to find out if anyone here has heard of Harold John Ockengay before. Okay, we okay. We have a nice opportunity to be introduced to Harold John Ockengay. No doubt you've heard of Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, down south. 
He was the first president of that seminary. Akengay was a student of J. Gresham Machen. I mentioned him earlier. He was a pre- professor at Princeton. Uh, Machen was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary who founded Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia as a result of the liberalism within the Presbyterian Church of that era. One of his uh, strong standout students was Harold John Akengay. If you've been to Boston, you've traveled across the continent and been to Boston and been on, uh, on Boston Common, you are taking the American Revolution Trail or the Freedom Trail they have there in Boston, you can see then Park Street Church. Um, its cemetery is very well-traveled because uh, uh, founding fathers uh, like Samuel Adams are buried right next to it. Park Street was Harold John Ockengay's church. Um, fascinatingly, it was his church while he was the president of Fuller. I don't know how he pulled that off. I didn't even like flying across the continent to get here. Um, but he was flying regularly back then in the 40s and 50s from Boston to Pasadena. I don't know how he pulled it off. But he identified three key elements of revival. He was an organizational leader, uh, hugely influential in establishing these different institutions. He would go on to be one of the founding members as well of uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Boston. But he identified three key elements of revival in that 20th century work of God that he was a leader in. He said three key elements are pure historic doctrine, meaning you have to be orthodox. If you don't believe the Bible, you don't get revival. Period. End of story. God doesn't bless outpourings of the Holy Spirit Because when the Holy Spirit is abused and ignored for what his specific biblical role is, which is to point us to Christ and to reveal his teaching in this word. So he said pure historic doctrine, number one, key element of revival. Second, evangelical unity. I said that revival sometimes splits and divides the church. It does, but there is a newfound unity among those who are caught up in this work and it goes across the denominations, as it did in Akengay's day. And finally, there must be an anointing of divine love. Not only God loving us, but then loving one another within the body of Christ. Those are three, then, key elements of, of, that, um, of revival, according to Harold John Akengay, one of these leaders. Well, he was a longtime friend of somebody that I presume a lot more of you know, And that would be the aforementioned Billy Graham. Billy Graham was the key speaker for Youth for Christ, that interdenominational ministry I mentioned before. I also talked about how uh, these evangelical leaders took advantage of of new technologies. Back in the 40s, the number one traveler on United Airlines, based out of Chicago, where he lived at the time, was Billy Graham. So he was definitely taking advantage of this new medium. Well, one of the things that happened much closer to here, that uh, really helped set the stage for this major mass revival of the 20th century was a meeting in November 1948 in Modesto, California, memorialized then later as the Modesto Manifesto. The idea was that we are not going to make the same mistakes that previous generations made. Now, we live in an era where Billy Graham, still alive, in case you didn't know, um, I, again, young people probably don't know, so Billy Graham's still alive, living in Asheville, well, near Asheville, Montreat, North Carolina. We live in an era where he is the defining evangelical, uh, the one person, the mon- probably the I mean, most famous evangelist, certainly, of, of our lifetimes and of several others. So we kind of take some of these things for granted, but at the time evangelists had terrible reputations in the popular eye because of several things. Well, these guys who gathered together in Modesto decided that they would, first of all, maintain financial integrity. And they would do so by setting their salaries. Here's what happened. Somebody would set up a revival, quote-unquote, in, in the previous days. they set up a revival in a city. they get everybody under the big tent and they would do a very emotional, pass-the-hat kind of appeal, and that would pay the revivalist's salary. So if the revivalist got a huge crowd, he makes a ton of money. 
you can see an inherent conflict of interest here for trying to teach God's word when you're getting paid by how big your crowd is. As a result, a lot of people, just like in the Apostle Paul's day, who preached for the money, not because of what they believe. So Billy Graham said, I'm going to set up a board. They're going to set our salaries, and we're not going to, we're not going to have a part in that. We'll get paid whether 1,000 people show up or 100 people show up. That was the first thing. The second thing they vowed in Modesto was to avoid sexual temptation. Well, they didn't have quite as many of the distractions I think that we have today. Nevertheless, many evangelists and church leaders succumbed to temptation and were expelled from ministry as a result. So they made a rule. These men would meet together alone with a, with a woman only if it were in public in certain kinds of settings. So, for example... They would not eat alone with a woman who was not their wives or travel together in a car. Now, this may, I don't know how that comes across to you, whether that's practical, whether it's even wise, but here's the thing. They saw what was happening and they vowed to do something about it for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the integrity of the gospel. They vowed to then be above board with everything in their dealings with women so that they would respect and honor those women as fellows, co-heirs of Christ, and to not then allow themselves to succumb to temptation. The next thing they decided to do was to work alongside local churches. Again, that may sound obvious. It wasn't obvious at the time. The thought was to come in and to compete. You'd build a big ministry around yourself, take people away from the church. Instead, when people came to listen to Billy Graham, they would... They would, they would, uh, Billy Graham would work with the churches in the area. They would invite him. He would only come if he was invited. Then he would come, he would set up, and then he would send people back to the churches when they left. Seems obvious, only obvious because of the Modesto Manifesto. The last thing they did was not exaggerate attendance figures. They would only take the attendance figures that the police would officially issue. And the police would often would often have come in lower on the numbers. But the thing was, nobody believed evangelists because they would always say, we had a great meeting with 25,000 people. And you're sitting there, you're like, maybe 2,500 people. That's ridiculous. So for the sake and the integrity of the gospel, they said that they would only use the attendance figures that were verified by police or other authority figures. So again, these are some of the incredible things that happened in this mid-20th century that set the stage for this revival. But there was another thing that came and posed a significant threat to this. It was a man by the name of Charles Templeton. He was very good friends with Billy Graham. Billy would say to this day that Charles was much more gifted and talented as a speaker and as a teacher than he was. Templeton decided he needed seminary education Billy, to this day, says that he wished he'd gotten a seminary education. He wishes he had, he had done this. I'm sorry that he didn't. But the problem was, at the time, Templeton went to Princeton. I mentioned Princeton as the school that J. Gresham Machen had moved away from. Well, Templeton went to Princeton, learned a lot of things about the Bible that were not true, that led him to distrust Scripture. And he told Billy Graham, if you want to be respected, you have to believe these things as well, and you've got to stop believing the Bible. The Bible is just plain wrong. Again, this is what he learned in seminary. This is what he learned in seminary. So Billy, very confused about this. He had an, he had an education. Started out at Bob Jones. Went to a school in Florida. Ended up at Wheaton College. It's right near where I lived for about 10 years. About 8 years, I should say. And, uh, but his degree was in anthropology. He didn't know all these things about biblical criticism. He was, he was intimidated in front, of, in front of this criticism. So he went down to Southern California. He was supposed to be in charge of a huge crusade, which was just his way of talking about a big evangelistic meeting. It was supposed to happen in 1949, but he was in the throes of this doubt. He talked with a woman named Henrietta Mears. She was the Christian education director at Hollywood First Presbyterian Church. He sat down with this woman who would be tremendously influential. Um, again, probably, has anybody heard of Henrietta Mears in here? All right. 
hey, more than Akenge. That's encouraging. Okay, so Mir sat down, in many ways just was able to put Billy's mind at ease and to send him back to Scripture to find this encouragement and to find that it was fully trustworthy. If you know Billy, I don't have a good Billy Graham impersonation, so I'm sorry about that, but you could always see him saying, the Bible says, that became his trademark phrase, what the Scripture has held high, only possible because of the encouragement that Henrietta Mears gave him to be able to know why, as Christians, we can trust Scripture. Now, you know, I don't, I don't even have to tell you how this story really plays out, because if you've read the book Unbroken, or if you plan to go see the movie coming out on Christmas, you already know how the story ends. You know how the story ends? Because the protagonist of Unbroken, Louis Zamperini, was converted at that Los Angeles crusade in 1949. He was converted. Um, again, I won't go into Louis' story. Just say, I hope the movie tells the full story. I have doubts that it will, um, especially because the things that the director, again, Angelina Jolie, said about it um, were very discouraging. Louis died this year. Um, again, just incredible life. The real life Forrest Gump in more fascinating ways, really. Um, but uh, they all attributed all of Louis' success in life as an Olympian, as surviving at sea, surviving prison camps, and, and forgiving his Japanese captors who had punished him so severely. They always attributed it to his indomitable spirit. No, it was Jesus who saved him from his brokenness in light of what he had suffered. Louis came back to Los Angeles a broken, broken man. As a result of what he'd done, he got married very quickly to a wonderful woman, abused alcohol. Louis did, abused her. She, in her desperation, went to visit this preacher named Billy Graham. Got saved, encouraged her husband to come as a last-ditch effort to save their marriage. He didn't want to come, did so reluctantly. And there he heard Billy Graham say, among many other things, we need revival. That was his refrain at that Los Angeles crusade. And God brought it about, at least in Louis Zamperini's life. Working behind the scenes in Los Angeles were 800 different prayer groups in Southern California, working at that same time that Billy Graham was doubting whether or not he could truly preach the Scriptures. That uh, evangelistic meetings ran for eight weeks with hundreds of thousands like Louis Zamperini attending. And it turned, turned Billy Graham into an international superstar. Again, I could tease out all the different incredible implications that have shaped the world that you and I live in, but suffice to say, God was at work in a powerful way that is still being felt today. Two more people I want to talk about quickly. One is somebody I'm particularly, personally indebted to. Uh, Well, the first book I worked on was about Billy Graham, which was incredible, but closer to my heart was a man whose ministry... Um, discipled me in college, helped me to meet my wife, discipled her, and set me on the trajectory that I've been on ever since then. That would be Bill Bright. Anybody here involved in Campus Crusade for Christ or have been at any point? All right, a few folks there as well. It's the largest evangelistic ministry in the world, and it sprung out of this revival in the mid-20th century in California. Bill Bright, the founder, was a failed actor, a failed businessman, and a failed seminary student. Failed, actually, at both uh, Fuller and at Princeton, both places. But fascinatingly, the reason he failed is because he couldn't devote himself to the studies because he was evangelizing so much on campus. That was his problem. I don't hear that excuse too often in the seminary where my office is today. Um, But all of this was interconnected. That's what God seems to do. He brings people together together. Brings people together in surprising ways. His inspiration was the same woman who inspired Billy Graham, Henrietta Mears. She was Bill Bright's main influence. He also then, like I said, studied at Fuller for a while. In the aftermath of 1949, he stayed in Los Angeles, Bill did, and began evangelizing the campuses, Southern Cal and UCLA. Huge effect. Many people coming to the Lord uh, All-American athletes, people, people who had huge influence. All of that came out of those very evangelistic meetings again in 1949. 
Last person I want to talk about then is Carl Henry. Things that Henry was the founding editor of Christianity Today magazine, which is where I worked uh, for a number of years as an associate editor. Uh, based out of Chicago, it was founded. Um, he was first editor, but founder was Billy Graham. Still a wonderful magazine today that I encourage you to subscribe to and read. I think what I love about Carl Henry and about all of these leaders is that they prayed just like Leontz talked to us about. They prayed as if God would actually answer. Like they believed that God loved them as a father. And they believed with even stronger confidence that their heavenly father would listen than they even believed in their earthly fathers giving them good gifts, just as Jesus told them to. They prayed that God actually wanted to save sinners that it wasn't just something that we think is okay, but that this is the very thing God is about. He's done it for you. He's done it for me. And He wants to do it for others. And He wants to use us, revived, to do that. These were men and women who had the eyes of faith that Jesus commended to Thomas, especially for those after Thomas, like you and me, who did not see and yet believe. Carl Henry was a founding faculty member of Fuller in Pasadena. He believed that God really can give us the spirit of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. And he could really give us a spirit of unity in love. He wrote something in 1947 um, that I try to reread on a regular basis. It's called The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism, a short treatise that was originally a talk I want to read a section of it that's always inspired me and became in many ways the foundation of this talk. This is him urging Christians to outlive our neighbors in the gospel of Christ. So he says, The evangelical task is pr- primarily is the preaching of the gospel in the interest of individual regeneration, or new birth, by the supernatural grace of God in such a way that divine redemption can be recognized as the best solution of our problems, and this is key, individual and social. Not just for you, but for you and your community. He then said, This produces within history, through the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, a divine society that transcends national and international lines. The corporate testimony of believers in their purity of life should provide for the world an example of the divine dynamic to overcome evils in every realm. This is so important. This is the foundation of what I've been telling you about about how we view history. The social problems of our day are much more complex than in apostolic times, but they do not, on that account, differ in principle. When the 20th century church begins to outlive its environment, as the first century church outreached its pagan neighbors, the modern mind, too, will stop casting about for other solutions. Again, an incredibly powerful influence on me. Again, urging us, we have the Holy Spirit among us to outlive our neighbors, to show them a different way. And even though our era is incredibly complex, it is not, it is not, beyond the power of God. It is not beyond His power to awaken it and revive it and transform it as He has in the past, as He did in this incredible 20th century awakening. You and I live in what the theologians call the already time. The already time meaning the kingdom has come, Christ has come, and Christ is risen. What revival does is give us a glimpse of again what the theologians call the not yet of the kingdom. But we live with the sure promise that Jesus is coming again. Revival gives us that glimpse, a foretaste of it. I don't know why anyone wouldn't want that. We pray for that not only in eternity, but that we would have opportunity even now for God to break in among us. I'm going to pray to that end. Heavenly Father, thank You for giving us Your Son, giving us Your Word, and giving us these examples from history. Lord, help us to believe 
that you are the God who acts in space and time and today. That these things testified in your scripture are true. Give us, Lord, the eyes of faith to believe that you are still resurrecting the dead. You are saving us, Jesus, from our sins and giving us new life. We pray for our friends, our family, our neighbors who do not yet believe. We pray, Lord, that you might use us as the catalyst for their coming to faith. Lord, make us humble, obedient servants, ever thankful for your grace. We pray, God, that you would give us the eyes of faith. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.